Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. Hi, I'm Ben Rhodes. And Ben, we are unfortunately recording a bonus Pod Save the World on Friday, January 3rd that we did not think we were doing, but we are both legitimately afraid uh, that we might be starting uh, a war with Iran. Or in fact, you know, we have started a war with Iran, and I guess we're afraid of the consequences. So here we are. Yeah, Happy New Year, everybody. Yeah, Happy fucking New Year. Um, All right, well, let's just start with what actually happened. We're, of course, talking about uh, the assassination of Qasem Soleimani. So on January 2nd, President Trump ordered a drone strike on a top Iranian official named Qasem Soleimani. And we're going to get into much more detail about who he is and how important he is uh, in the Iranian system in a minute. But for the sake of this first portion, just imagine if Iran had killed the head of CENTCOM, a job David Petraeus once had. So... Um, The Department of Defense uh, put out a statement late last night justifying this attack, saying that Soleimani was, quote, actively developing plans to attack American diplomats and service members in Iraq and throughout the region. Uh, They said the strike's goal was to deter future Iranian attacks. The strike killed five total people, including the head of a a group of pro-Iranian militia groups. Um, The U.S. had been trading fire with some of these militia groups for about a week or so, in particular, one called Khatib Hezbollah, um, or, or KH. KH had killed a U.S. contractor working on a base in Kirkuk. In response, the U.S. bombed a bunch of sites affiliated with this militia group. Uh, a bunch of those militia members then stormed the U.S. embassy and held parts of it for 24 hours uh, in Baghdad. So that was like all the tension that got us to today. So Ben, I think we should probably start with just taking the the Pentagon statement and some of the statements by Mike Pompeo this morning at face value uh, about this force protection question, because it is true that these Iranian-backed militia groups in Iraq uh, have been attacking U.S. diplomatic facilities a lot recently, and Iran has a long history of providing weapons and support to these uh, militia groups in Iraq that have killed hundreds of U.S. service members since the invasion in 2003. But for me, the, the logic here breaks down when you start talking about uh, taking out Soleimani as a response. I mean, again, we'll get into more specifics, but he's like a, a number two or three guy in their system, which means that the Iranians will likely respond and escalate. And, you know, don't take my word for it. Lindsey Graham was on TV saying, quote, we need to get ready for a major pushback. Our people in Iraq and the Middle East are going to be targeted. I think we need to be ready for a big counterpunch. So, you know, Ben, like if the stated legal and policy basis for taking this strike against Soleimani is protecting our forces, you already have one of Trump's top allies saying it's going to lead to more attacks. And, you know, it seems like a, a flawed plan here. Yeah. I mean, the basic inherent contradiction in their plan is that they say that they took this strike to avoid attacks on our personnel. And yet um, it is very likely, if not certain, that uh, 
the response from the Iranians will be greater risk uh, to our personnel. Um, you know, it's impossible to kind of overstate the importance of Qasem Soleimani in the Iranian system. Um, very likely the, the second most influential guy runs the Quds force, which basically means he coordinates Iran's relationships with all of their proxy forces across that region. So uh, with Hezbollah and Lebanon, with Hamas in the Palestinian territories, with Shia militias uh, inside of Iraq, um, with the Houthis uh, in Yemen, um, with some of the proxies that they've dealt with uh, in Afghanistan. Um, so the danger here is, uh, first of all, just assassinating a senior Iranian general like this is an incredibly dramatic escalation. And the Iranians have already made clear that they will respond. It's not a question of whether they, they will respond in, in some fashion. Uh, so this just dramatically kind of escalated this, you know, ongoing conflict, frankly, between the United States and Iran. Uh, but also a lot of those proxy forces feel deep loyalty to Qasem Soleimani. Um, and so the risk uh, that they may, either at Iran's direction or even on their own, um, feel the need to respond in places like Iraq and Lebanon and Afghanistan um, is very high here. And, and so the, the challenge is that, you know, you have a president who has initiated, you know, a very significant international crisis that is going to play out likely in multiple places over a pretty extended period of time. And that president is Donald Trump. And how can you have confidence that he uh, has kind of the, the, the judgment, the temperament uh, to deal with what's coming? Yeah. I mean, so let's just talk about these groups for a little bit. I mean, uh, Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin uh, from Michigan, she served uh, under Bush and Obama. She was in the CIA and she was at the Pentagon. And she tweeted what I thought was a, a very helpful thread on how, you know, both Bush and Obama debated whether to respond directly to Qasem Soleimani and, and debated actually taking him out. And the risk was always deemed uh, bigger than the reward, for for lack of a better way to put it. I mean, you don't need to kill the general of an army to disrupt a military operation. And there have been countless threats by uh, KHAH, some of these Shia militia groups against uh, American personnel and facilities in the region. And so, first of all, Congress and the public needs to demand that Pompeo and Trump and the entire administration show us this intelligence about an imminent threat uh, before we take anything they say at face value. I mean, this is still the president that draws on a weather map with a Sharpie to prove uh, that he was right about a, a hurricane track, right? I mean, they lie about literally everything. But again, like the bigger question here is how is this seen as a sound strategy that will reduce the risk to U.S. personnel? I just don't get it. Yeah, well, one way to think about this, you know, and I saw Alyssa's thread was quite good, and I served with Alyssa. She knows as much about this threat from Shia militias in Iraq in particular as anybody. But in 2006 and 2007, when we had, you know, 160,000 troops in Iraq at the height of the surge, and when a lot of these attacks from Shia militias were wounding uh, Americans, and we should say, by the way, no question Qasem Soleimani is a bad guy. I know people, you know people, Tommy, uh, who've been uh, wounded by rocket attacks where Qasem Soleimani's proxies fired those rockets. But the Bush administration, even with 160,000 troops in Iraq at that time, uh, even with 
opportunities to take out Qasem Soleimani decided not to. So even before Obama, uh, this was something that they judged uh, would cross a a threshold into a war with Iran. And that's what we're really talking about, because to assassinate a general uh, like this, a government official, you know, this isn't like a drone strike against a terrorist. We are at war with al-Qaeda, and that's the basis under which uh, we've taken shots at, at terrorist leaders. Uh, to, to assassinate a general is an act of war um, in the eyes of certainly Iran uh, and probably in the eyes of uh, just about every other country around the world. And what is so complicated and maddening about this is Trump can't have it both ways. Uh, he can't say he's avoiding getting us into more wars and then commit an act of war like this that raises the risk of you know serious ongoing conflict with Iran. Uh, either we're at war or we're not. If we are at war, he has to make the case to the American people. He needs an authorization for the use of military force from the United States Congress. He didn't even notify congressional leaders before he took this strike. He didn't consult with U.S. allies. He didn't even notify the Iraqi government, which is certainly opposed to this strike uh, on their territory. Uh, and so, you know, he's basically engaging in a war with Iran and provoking a response that is going to similarly be in some fashion an act of war um, without telling the American people what is happening here. Um, The communications were just, I mean, I don't know what you think, Tommy, it's astonishing to essentially see the United States, you know, in my lifetime, I can't remember the last time we assassinated this senior, a government official of another country, to see the United States do that. And there were hours where the Iraqis were confirming it. The Iranians were confirming it. We had no word from the president of the United States or his team. And then we get like a, an American flag tweet. Um, the gravity of what he chose to do versus what he's explained to the American people is, is part of what is so deeply troubling about this situation. I mean, it doesn't seem like they've done any preparation or took any precautions, right? I mean, my point of reference is uh, the bin Laden operation, where there was like a literally a, a dozens of pages long playbook of notifications and calls and press statements and explanations, because the U.S. government has an obligation to inform the American people, our allies, partners around the world, when something like this happens. And yeah, like last night I tweeted my frustration that the White House just let this news hang out there unconfirmed for hours and hours. And some f- of the most fucking tedious, annoying dipshits on Twitter try to suggest that I was mad at the PR around the strike and that was the only problem with it. No, you assholes. The point is that when you start a war, you have to explain to the American people, you have to explain to the world. And the fact that they weren't prepared to put out a simple statement, in fact, the DOD statement got the name of the IRGC wrong, and and Trump tweeted clip art. So that made me very worried about the rest of the planning. Like, what has been done to make sure that U.S. personnel serving in Iraq or Lebanon or Kuwait or all these places are, are protected? Because the risk just went up dramatically, and it doesn't seem like anything has been done about it. Yeah, no, you're right. It's not about PR. It's about what that says about their preparation and how they thought through just how serious an action it is to kill this important of an Iranian uh, official. And, you know, part of what's complicated here, Tommy, is that like, you know, I saw some people talking about World War III last night. Like, I I hope, we, you know, we don't end up there. Uh, I, I presume what they mean is that Russia and China could get drawn. And I don't think that's the most likely course. 
what's likely to happen here is is that over time, it may not happen this week or even next week, but over the coming months, there will be an Iranian response. And because of these proxies, that response can come by Iran trying to chase us literally out of Iraq um, and uh, through attacks on our embassy uh, and on our troops there. And keep in mind, when we had 160,000 troops in Iraq, they were able to carry out those attacks at will. They can certainly do that now with about 5,000 U.S. troops there. This could come through attacks in Lebanon. This could come through attacks in Afghanistan. We've seen attacks on tankers in that part of the world. We've seen attacks on Saudi oil facilities. The Iranian uh, proxies also have sleeper cells um, in, in places like South America and potentially even here in the United States. So there are many ways in which this could escalate and spiral out of control or lead to Americans being harmed or killed. And, and again, you would like to think that that they had thought this through. But unfortunately, with every step that they've taken with the Iranians since pulling out of the nuclear deal, uh, we've seen evidence that the opposite is the case, that they don't think these things through before they do them. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. So let's just do a little more on Qasem uh, Soleimani is before we get into how we got here, because it's really important to understand what a big deal he is in their system. So, you know, a, a former Obama-era Pentagon official described him as Iran's David Petraeus, Stan McChrystal, and Brett McGurk all rolled into one. So that's, you know, two top generals, one famous one who was briefly head of the CIA and a top diplomat, a, a right-winger who hates Obama, hates the Iran deal, described Soleimani as the equivalent of the head of our special forces command, the head of the CIA and the foreign minister all rolled into one. So, you know, my point here is that both sides of the of the political equation agree he is one of the most important people in their system. His job was running the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps or IRGC's elite Quds Force unit. So he started running that group in 1998. There's this great Dexter Filkins piece on Qasem Soleimani in The New Yorker in 2013 uh, that's worth reading. But, you know, Dexter estimated that the Quds Force is like 10 to 20,000 members. And within that organization, you have fighters, you have military trainers, you have intelligence officers. It's basically a one-stop shop for Iran's uh, support for terrorism and all their external military and intelligence operations. So, you know, when Iran is worried that Assad is losing the fight in Syria, Soleimani sends in a bunch of IRGC guys and Quds Force members to arm and train them. Eventually, he started reportedly flying to Damascus and coordinating the war effort himself from there. Um, the Quds Force helped found uh, Lebanese Hezbollah 
And because of those close ties, they can actually direct them to attack targets on behalf of Iran. Um, it, and you mentioned this earlier, Ben, but it's very important to understand that uh, shortly after the U.S. invasion of Iraq, the Quds Force started providing insurgents in Iraq with these incredibly deadly weapons, including these roadside bombs called EFPs that killed hundreds of U.S. service members serving in Iraq. And the Pentagon now estimates that one in six U.S. combat fatalities in Iraq were attributable to one of these Iranian-backed militia force. So Soleimani was understandably despised by the U.S. military. Um, and, and all the terrible things being said about them are true. But, you know, he also served this major political role, was incredibly popular in the region. So there are likely to be enormous ramifications here. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just tick through a few uh, that I haven't mentioned thus far. One, inside of Iran, this will unite the different factions in Iran around a hard line. You're just what Trump is saying that somehow the Iranian people are going to rise up or Pompeo said you know, they'll see this as a step on behalf of their freedom that just profoundly misunderstands, you know, the nature of the Iranian political system and regime, and frankly, just Iranian pride that we just assassinated, you know, somebody who is a very important figure and has been an important figure in their public life um, for 20 years. And so what you'll see is uh, Iran, which had been facing protests uh, from its people, you know, I think this will consolidate a lot of support around the government and frankly, Iran taking a hard line. Um, and even, you know, next year, there's an election in Iran. Uh, this certainly sends things likely in a, in a harder line direction in, in Iranian politics. And that could have impacts for years to come. Um, second, um, in addition to Lebanese Hezbollah, as you mentioned, um, and, and his actions in Syria, you know, he was fighting in Iraq uh, over the course of the last 15 years. Um, he was the guy who helped create, sponsor, support these Shia militias uh, who did carry out a lot of these attacks. The, the reason I, I, I think it's worth coming back to that point is that this strike was taken at Baghdad International Airport without notifying the Iraqi government. And so the likelihood that there will be a movement inside of Iraq to kick the United States out of that country is high. Um, the risk to Americans serving in Iraq is high. And so one potential strategic outcome of this could be uh, the United States in some fashion uh, being a target in Iraq, if not you know, chased out of Iraq by Iran, its proxies, uh, and uh, potentially even you know, the Iraqi government uh, not wanting uh, to have the United States take actions like this on their soil, not wanting the United States to use um, Iraq as a theater to engage in a war uh, against uh, Iran like that. Um, and then also, you know, both the Quds Force and uh, Hezbollah have been cultivating cells, as I said before, around the world. And, and we used to look at different scenarios um, for conflicts between the United States and Iran. And one of the things that we anticipated is that they could activate essentially these sleeper cells that they had set up precisely for this type of, of contingency. Um, and, and without referring to intelligence, just to give a couple of examples, um, you know, there was a plot, a Quds Force directed plot, uh, to potentially assassinate the Saudi ambassador in the United States um, that was uncovered in the Obama administration. There have been arrests being, that have been made, including in um, uh, New York City, of, of, of people casing potential targets. So uh, the reach of the Quds Force of Hezbollah is profound in a place like Iraq, but it also spreads 
uh, you know, very far afield uh, around the world. And that's why this reaction that we're, we anticipate from Iran is not likely to be like a conventional you know, war where they're, they're firing you know, a lot of ballistic missiles at, at U.S. forces and, and, and there's a kind of an Iraq-style war. What it could be is a series of attacks in different places over time uh, that then risks the U.S. Uh, escalating in response and then Iran escalating and this whole thing then can spiral. Um, you know that that I think is uh, is is very much a concern, and and I should say some people have said, well, Qasem Soleimani is indispensable and he's been removed. There's something to that, although uh, you know I think he's also p- prepared that organization to exist without him. He uh, th- there's some Iran analysts I know who, who've said, you know, long said that he's the kind of guy who always anticipated, quote unquote, martyrdom. You know, um, and, and that's what he is now in the Iranian. Uh, certainly in the eyes of the Iranian government, uh, they'll make him out to be a martyr. Yeah. And I also think it's worth just saying that, you know, he could be the worst person on the planet, but that's, it's another leap to suggest that is justified legally or morally or good policy to then assassinate them, right? I mean, that's a slippery slope. There's a lot of bad leaders in the world. There's Kim Jong-un, there's Putin. Are we now saying that the U.S. policy is that we might assassinate them? And again, like, I totally understand why anyone serving in Iraq or who served there despises Soleimani. I mean, he's directly responsible for killing Americans. But the worst case scenario is Soleimani leads to all these deaths of U.S. service members. We kill Soleimani. We get drawn deeper into a, a more vicious conflict and more Americans die. I mean, it's a vicious cycle here, and we need to think about the ramifications of our actions. That's the thing. We don't, we don't you know, kill every bad guy with our military uh, around the world. Um, and there's a reason... The past administrations, not just Obama's, but Bush's even, uh, did not do so. And like you and I, look, you and I both worked very closely with somebody uh, who was very badly injured uh, by one of these Shia militias. Um, uh, We know what a bad guy he is. It's a different question, though, as to whether or not, uh, yes, you know, justice is done in some way for his actions. The question, though, is whether that was the right decision. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. So sort of a how did we get here question. I mean, I guess you could start this place in a, in a lot of places when you're talking about tensions with Iran. You could talk about 1953 and, and the CIA-backed coup that installed the Shah. We could talk about the hostage crisis in 79. You could talk about the invasion in Iraq. But, I mean, maybe we just start in 2015, Ben, uh, and Trump's decision to pull out of the Iran deal. And, and maybe you could tick through, you know, some of the ways we've seen this thing escalate since that time. Yeah, no, I, I, and some of the world those will be familiar with this, but it, it's very important to go through this because... You know, I've seen in a lot of the coverage, 
this timeline that suggests that this began you know last week when the Shia militia group inside of Iraq fired uh, a rocket that uh, ended up killing an American contractor. Trump responds with an airstrike that kills uh, dozens of militia members. Then there's the death to America uh, incursion at our embassy, and then the strike. But really, uh, unequivocally, this has to be traced back to the decision to pull out of the Iran nuclear deal. Just for starters, take the fact that there were no rocket attacks on U.S. personnel, U.S. interests in Iraq during the implementation of the Iran deal. That had stopped. Then Trump pulls out of the Iran nuclear agreement. It was predicted by many people at that time that that would lead to a series of escalations and provocations. Trump and Pompeo and all of his goons said that somehow pulling out of the Iran deal was going to get them a better nuclear deal and was going to end Iranian provocations in the region, or at least be tougher on them and somehow affect them more than Obama did. Let's look at what has happened. Trump pulls out of the Iran nuclear deal. He isolates the United States from all of our allies, every other party to that deal. He reimposes sanctions. What do the Iranians do? They resume their nuclear program. And this does not get enough attention. The, the, the number one concern used to be the nuclear program, Iran getting a nuclear weapon. Well, they, they've resumed their nuclear program in response to Trump pulling out of the deal. Then they begin to engage in a series of provocations. You have the Iranian attacks on tankers in that region. You have the Iranians shooting down a U.S. drone. You have the Iranians uh, firing uh, or, or their proxies firing uh, missiles at Saudi oil facilities. And each time they do this, you know, there's some Trump response, and usually it's sanctions, threats, rhetoric, deployments of U.S. troops to the region. But we have been on a cycle of escalation with Iran from the, the day that Trump made the decision to pull out of the nuclear agreement. And, and frankly, the Shia rocket attacks inside of Iraq were a part of that cycle of escalation. Uh, and now Trump has taken this step. So Trump's pulling out of that nuclear deal has both led to Iran resuming and increasing its nuclear program. And we should watch, by the way, in the days to come, one thing that world those should watch is, do the Iranians announce further steps uh, to expand their nuclear program? And suddenly we're dealing with a, a country that we're in a conflict with that could be trying to accelerate its efforts to build a nuclear weapon. And at the same time, they're increasing these regional provocations and now vowing retaliation and revenge for Qasem Soleimani. So he's both made it more likely that there is going to be a war between the United States and Iran, and in some ways we already are in this kind of low-boil war between the United States and Iran, and he's made it more likely that Iran will get a nuclear weapon. This is a catastrophic failure of American foreign policy. It never should have come to this. The nuclear deal had dealt with the most important issue in terms of U.S. national security, and because of Trump's petty obsession with Obama, and because of advisors like Mike Pompeo, uh, here here we are on the precipice of this. And, and a, a guy, Trump, who promised to get us out of these wars has gotten us into a very significant new international crisis in the Middle East with a country, Iran, that is three times the size of Iraq and far more sophisticated than the Taliban or anybody we've been fighting to this point. Yeah. Um, so we should be clear that we can't predict the future. We don't know what's going to happen next, but there are some things that are just worth knowing and worth considering. So, so far uh, in response, Iran's supreme leader has warned about hard revenge 
uh, current and former IRGC members are saying similar things. The Iraqi leaders have condemned the attack. And this is, like you said, particularly complicated for them since this happened on Iraqi soil. And because this strike also killed uh, the deputy leader of this group of Iraqi militia forces that were sort of stood up to fight ISIS and, you know, fought with us against ISIS, but now are you know, have been partially brought into Iraq's security system, although they still have ties and allegiance to Iran. But, you know, it's it's complicated world. But so it's, you know, it's very likely that there will be enormous pressure on the Iraqi government to expel all U.S. troops and diplomatic personnel from the from Iraq. Um, U.S. personnel in a whole bunch of countries will be at risk of retaliation. I mean, Trump today, I believe, announced 3,000 more troops are heading to the Middle East. I, my understanding is that he sent more than 14,000 additional troops to the Middle East since May. And we've got service members in Iraq, Jordan, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Syria, the UAE. We have diplomats in many, many more places. How are we protecting them? I mean, I imagine the Israelis are extremely worried about potential retaliation. I wouldn't want to be in Lebanon right now. I mean, the risk profile for Americans serving the government or just living abroad in countless places just went up enormously. Yeah, no, that's right. And, uh, you know, the Iranian response could be unpredictable, too, um, in the sense that, you know, yes, they could attack our embassy in Baghdad or Beirut, but they could also just kind of target Americans. Um uh, Americans traveling or overseas. I mean, we're not trying to scare people here. Um, and, and like I said, this this might be something that plays out over time, but there will be an Iranian response. There's no question. Um, everything about that system suggests that they will have to respond. They've said they will, um, so they're going to feel like they need to follow through on that. Um, and, and yeah, Tommy, to look at these numbers, um, I mean, you've made the point on this podcast about you know the scrutiny that, that hadn't come to the failure of his North Korea policy. How about the scrutiny and the fact that this guy goes around the country telling rallies that he's ended wars and we've sent over 10,000 additional U.S. troops to the Middle East uh, uh, in, in a situation that is beginning to boil over, you know? Yeah. Um, so let's talk about what uh, 2020 Democrats have said, should be saying. Um, you know, this is it's hard to talk about this stuff in real time, right? I mean, you don't know the underlying intelligence. We don't trust the administration to provide it to us in in an honest fashion. But, you know, you kind of want to know the circumstances that led to this strike. Um, So you saw a lot of, you know, I I think there was sort of like the concerned versus opposed camps, you know? I mean, a lot of these statements started with, you know, a bunch of language about how bad Soleimani is and then raised questions about Trump's lack of strategy in the Middle East, the lack of consultation with Congress, Congress, uh, the legal basis for this strike, which are all important things. I was actually surprised at how strongly Biden criticized uh, the assassination. He said, quote, Trump tossed a stick of dynamite into a tinderbox. Elizabeth Warren put out a statement where she said, this reckless move escalates the situation with Iran and increases the likelihood of more deaths in new Middle East conflict. Um, Bernie Sanders and Andrew Yang were the most unequivocally opposed to Trump's action. Bernie said Trump's dangerous escalation brings us closer to another disastrous war in the Middle East and could cost countless lives and trillions more dollars. Uh, Trump proposed to end endless wars, but this action puts us on the path to another one. Uh, Andrew Yang said war with Iran is the last thing we need and called to de-escalate tensions. Tulsi Gabbard called it an act of war by Trump that violated the Constitution. Um, Mayor Pete 
took the longest to release a statement. Uh, he laid out concerns, but didn't really criticize the strike itself. So I don't know. I, look, it's early. Things are moving quickly. But I would really like to see Democrats come out hard against this decision. I mean, this is an act of war. Trump just started a war with Iran. He killed one of their top leaders, starting a war with insane. And I think like it really you can combine pretty easily uh, the smart policy decision, the morally right decision in the politically popular decision by saying our president doesn't know what the fuck he's doing and we should not start a war with Iran. That's a pretty simple message. Yeah. And, and you know, I think the important thing here, too, is that this is a complicated thing. I mean, we, we've been talking about it for 30 minutes. Um, and, and you can't assume that voters are, are just going to intuitively understand that, you know, Trump has made this mess. And, and, and so I think that suggests that candidates have to connect the, the whatever comes from this to that initial decision to pull the Iran deal. Um, that, is, you know, it's a pretty, it's a, you can do it pretty simply. We had a deal that dealt with their nuclear program and avoided a war. Trump pulled out of their deal, and now they've resumed their nuclear program uh, and were engaged in acts of war back and forth with Iran. He promised to end these wars, uh, and he's getting us back into them. And the, you know, there's thousands, many thousands more American troops in that region. But the challenge is you can't just do it in a, in a carefully written statement when this is in the news. You know, you've got to be pounding this issue uh, it doesn't mean you don't talk about uh, healthcare and the economy as your focus, but you need uh, to have a regular case that you're prosecuting against Trump, that he's not just an embarrassment on the world stage, but he's incompetent and ineffective in ways that are making us less safe, because Trump is going to be lying, you know, relentlessly between now and the election. Uh, you know, he's going to somehow be blaming Obama for whatever happens. Uh, you know, the, the, I see Pompeo regularly blaming the nuclear deal for all these provocations that Iran has committed since they left the nuclear deal, right? And, and so for me, I think uh, the, the important thing is that Democrats don't shy away from making a very strong criticism that this has made us less safe, that this risks another war, that Trump lied to you when he said he was ending the wars. In fact, he's making new wars more likely and sending more troops uh, into dangerous places. Um, and and that it takes some, some repetition. I was glad to see how fast Biden was with that statement. And then also, uh, you know, I think I saw an ad up today. Bernie has a powerful case to make that he opposed the war in Iraq from the beginning, which frankly opened the initial Pandora's box that led all the way uh, to where we are today. So that, you know, important for Bernie to be making his forceful case uh, that he wants to fundamentally change the kind of mindset that got us into Iraq in the first place. Um, and then people like Warren Buttigieg, you know, figuring out where they are on that spectrum. But in any event, uh, we've got, you know, this year, this election year could be much more defined by international crises than people initially thought. And it's important that these Democrats get in front of that and have an overarching argument about Trump's failed leadership on these issues and his dangerous temperament uh, that, that, that they're making on a regular basis. Yeah. And I should say, I think Bernie is delivering a speech or at least a topper to his town hall in Iowa. Like right now, as we record, so we didn't have time to really incorporate what he said, but I imagine it will be pretty clearly in line with what he said last night. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll talk about more of this stuff uh, next week, but, you know, look, <laughs> Democrats, 
I mean, it's not hard to make a case against Trump on foreign policy right now. I realize that voters care more about economic issues and Democratic voters in Iowa right now care about electability more than anything else. Fine. But there is a very clear, very simple case to be made against Trump and how he is making us less safe because he's just incompetent. I mean, a couple days ago, the North Koreans abandoned uh, all the negotiations that have been ongoing uh, since the Singapore summit. And basically what Trump did was give Kim Jong-un a couple years to make a dozen, two dozen more nuclear weapons to improve his missile capability and to develop other technologies while they pretended to be buddies. So like there have been several massively consequential uh, foreign policy failures in just the last couple of days that Democrats need to be talking about because we have seen this fucking thing before. Like the press will believe a bunch of uh, half-baked intel that gets leaked to them from Pompeo's team and, you know, people will get nervous uh, about, you know, coming out against military conflict for some reason. But I, I think... There's a pretty clear recent history of uh, U.S. intervention militarily in the Middle East leading to disaster. And I don't know why anybody would be hesitant to say as much. Yeah. And, and, and you, know, you already see that, you know, the press always ends up framing these things in kind of hawkish terms. You know, and like I said, you already kind of see that in the way that uh, they're, they're not even kind of referencing how this all got kicked up when Trump pulled out of the Iran deal in the first place. So the, the Democrats are going to have to shape it. And you're absolutely right. I agree with everything you said. I'd add on the economy part. I mean, look, the Iraq war cost us trillions of dollars that we could have spent on any uh, manner of other things, healthcare, climate change, uh, you know, infrastructure development. Um, there is an economic case uh, of what the cost of another war in the Middle East is. There's a case to be made on the cost today. I mean, deploying, you know, we just keep seeing every few weeks these deployments of a few thousand more troops uh, to the region. That's not free. Um, we're spending money on that. You're going to see, I'm sure, you know, as this goes on, if this escalates, the price of oil will go up. Uh, that has an effect on Americans who are driving their cars, right? So, the, the, yes, it's first and foremost about our standing in the world and our security and our safety. But it's not like this is totally detached from the economy either. Um, and, and Bernie, I think, has been pretty good at pointing out that the Iraq war wasn't just a foreign policy catastrophe. It cost us literally trillions of dollars. Yep. Um, and if this thing spirals with the Iranians in the years to come, um, you know, we could be looking at, at huge costs. Be bold, Democrats. Make the case. No one is going to make it for you. Make the case. All right, Ben, I think that's all I got for this uh, emergency Iran pod. Uh, I wish we had better news, but uh, this is the reality. Yeah, the amazing thing is I, I was accumulating a, a huge mental list of things that we're going to have to address on the first pod back from this uh, holiday break, and, and it didn't even include this. I know. Um, I so know. we still have a lot to work through on, on Tuesday. Yeah, well... Uh, hopefully this doesn't get much worse uh, in the interim. I hope so. Um, okay, man. Thank you for jumping on. Uh, please tell uh, the family uh, I say hey and everyone in New York. And I'll see you soon. Yep. See you soon, man. Potsy of the World is a product of Crooked Media. The senior producer is Michael Martinez. Our assistant producer is Jordan Waller. It's mixed and edited by Chris Basil. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Nar Malconian, and Milo Kim, who film and share these interviews on video each week. 